0: Well, that question, was he just a man or something more, is really right where the author of Hebrews starts his book. Um, he answers that question in one of the most compelling and beautiful descriptions of who Jesus is uh, that, that I have ever run across. In some ways, he, it's the high point of the book. So listen uh, again, let's read again. The way he answers that question, was he just a man or was he something more? Um, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son You know, it's interesting, he forgoes the usual introductions that accompany New Testament letters, you know, uh, things like, hi, this is Paul, or Apollos, or whomever, or Luke, I'm writing to all of you Hebrews in Italy, or whoever you are, or wherever you are, none of that happens. Um, instead, he opens anonymously with this rich portrait of Jesus, and again, I, I think his, his anonymity, serves to focus and exalt Christ all the more. The very first thing he says, which is the context for this portrait of Christ that he gives to us, is that um, God speaks. Our God is a God who speaks, who speaks to his people. Um, In the past, he has done it often. In a diversity of almost piecemeal ways through the prophets, Kent Hughes writes, the emphasis here is on the grand diversity of God's speech in the Old Testament. He says God utilized great devices to instruct his prophets. God spoke to Moses at Sinai in thunder and lightning and with the voice of a trumpet. He whispered to Elijah at Horeb in a still small voice. Ezekiel was informed by visions, Daniel through dreams, God appeared to Abram in human form and to Jacob as an angel, God declared himself by law, by warning, by exhortation, by type, by parable, and when God's seers prophesied, they utilized nearly every method to communicate their message. Amos gave direct oracles from God, Malachi used questions and answers, Ezekiel performed bizarre symbolic acts, Haggai preached sermons, and Zechariah employed mysterious signs at many times and in many ways. I, I think of Isaiah at God's direction, wandering about naked. Um, I think of Jeremiah wearing a yoke made for oxen and carrying it around his city. I think of Ezekiel laying on his side for a year, only at God's directive to get up and lay on his other side for another year. I think of his eating his meals cooked over cow manure, all of this at God's directive as a way for God to speak to His people. At many times, in many ways, God speaks. He reveals Himself to us. The pages of the Old Testament are littered with the many voices and actions that God has used by His prophets to speak. But these voices, you get a sense that they're kind of piecemeal that there's an incompleteness to them because he goes on and says, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And you just get a sense, this is a better way of speaking. There's a sense of adequacy, of fullness, of finality to this statement um, the revelation comes not by prophets this time, but by a son, you know, and there's something about sending a message by your son that, uh, that really, really puts emphasis on it. it, gives a weightiness to it. Maybe you remember the story that Jesus himself told about a vineyard owner. It had come time to uh, harvest the fruits of his vineyard. And so, even though he had traveled away, he had, he had lent the money or lent the land out to tenants, and he sent a servant back to claim what was rightfully his. And they beat him and sent him away. And he sent a second servant with the same result, and a third servant, th- servant with the same result. And finally, the servant, or the, the owner in Jesus' story um, says this He says, The owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect Him. And so, this is God's supreme communication that comes to us in one voice, and it's the voice of His Son. And this Son, and the revelation He brings, is greater than the prophets. We could say, Jesus is greater than the prophets, He's not just another line, another in a long line of prophets. That's what Islam would say of Jesus. But he is one who is greater than the prophets. He is God's son. And so we ask the question maybe, how do we know? How do we truly know that he is from God, that he speaks for God, that he brings the true and greater communication from God? And that's what the writer helps us believe in the verses that follow the first verse. Starting in verse 2, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high and having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And so in this beautiful and amazing description of Jesus as the Son of God, the writer puts him forward as the one who is qualified to speak ultimately and supremely for God, the one who's to be trusted in that way. Because he does all these great works of God, and this morning I'm going to take, there's about seven things that are listed here. I'm going to cram them into three buckets for us to think about. He clearly says that the Son was involved in creation of the world, right? And he says that he's involved in three distinct ways in creation. First, he says in verse 2 that he is the heir of all Things That is, all creation was made for the Son. It was all intended as a gift from the Father, for the Son. So everything you see every day, the beautiful sunrise this morning, on the snow-covered uh, streets and yards, you know, the North Carolina mountains, the beaches, the birds, the, the forest of wake. As, as we call it, right? The lives of people around you each day, including the one you see in the mirror, including the ones that you hold dear. All things were created for the Son. Everything you see was made for the Son. He is the heir of all things. And so you figure as an heir of such magnitude of inheritance. You get a sense this son is greatly loved by the Father and wholly trusted with this kind of great inheritance. The Father gifts everything to him. Everything. He's a much-loved and wholly worthy heir to receive such an inheritance. So he... He's the heir of all creation. It's all made for Him. And we also see a second thing about His role in creation. All things were made through Him. It says, through Him, through Him also He created the world. So He's not only the one the world was created for, He's the the agent that God the Father used to create the world. When God spoke the world into existence in Genesis the son is that word that was spoken okay and now he is the creative word of god become flesh and in a sense he made it all and all is made for him paul puts this almost identical thought this way in colossians chapter 1 for by him by christ all things were created In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. It's almost like Hebrews is explaining Paul here for us. It's like an exposition of of His teaching for us. The same idea. He is the heir of all things. He's the maker of all things. Hebrews also says here that He is the sustainer of all things things. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. You know, one of the most astonishing discoveries that astrophysicists have made in recent decades is that if gravity, the force of gravity, were just point. Zero, 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 0, and a bunch more zeros that is one trillionth of one percent stronger than it is. Okay. Um, our universe would have collapsed catastrophically, ending in what they call a big crunch rather than a big bang. Okay. <laughs> Likewise, if gravity were just one trillionth of one percent weaker, our universe would have flown apart so rapidly that planets, stars, galaxies, all the basic constituents of the universe would never have had a chance to coalesce. We'd all just be dust in the wind. So is that an accident? That gravity's not too strong and not too weak, but just right? Well, there's a... There's a um, An astronomer from the University of Cambridge and one time avowed atheist, his name was Sir Fred Hoyle, he did not think so. After performing innumerable computations, Hoyle discovered that the odds of our being accidents of nature are comparable to the likelihood, in his words, of a tornado sweeping through a junkyard and assembling scrap scrap metal into a fully functioning Boeing 747. He said, so small as to be negligible following his calculations. He says, even if a tornado were to blow through enough junkyards to fill the whole universe, one arrives at the conclusion that biomaterials with their amazing measure of order must be the outcome of intelligent design. It must be. But the writer of Hebrews says, we can say even more than that. We can say much more than that the order of the universe belies intelligent design. He teaches us that this tornado sweeping through a junkyard and assembling scrap metal into a fully functioning Boeing 747 was performed and is maintained by none other than the Son of God. He is the one who makes sure that gravity today doesn't vary by one trillionth of one percent. He is the one who keeps our universe from flying apart and all of us becoming dust in the wind or from being collapsed and experiencing the big crunch. Christ does that. Jesus does that. Glory to the Son for that. Again, listen to Paul, what he says in Colossians chapter 1. He says, for by him all things were created... In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Paul says the exact same three things here. It's for Him, it's by Him, and He holds it all together God has spoken to us in these last days by His Son and no ordinary Son. He's the heir and maker and sustainer of all that exists. So as the Son of God, Jesus is active in God's work of creation. He's also active in God's work of revelation, He says here. Verse 3, He is the radiance of Of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. As the rays are to the sun, as the mold is to the coin that bears the imprint, so the sun is to God. Exact, precise, accurate, true, revealing God. Thomas Schreiner says that Hebrews is not alone in the sentiments expressed in the previous two phrases. John's Gospel emphasizes that God speaks to human beings in Jesus Christ. God is invisible and in that sense inaccessible, but Jesus Christ explains to human beings who God is. John chapter 1, verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Okay. In the same way Jesus instructs Philip that the one who has seen him has seen the Father. John 14 puts it this way. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Okay. Colossians 1.15, as we've seen, Paul says that he, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. If you want to know what God is like, Hebrews says, look at His Son. He's the radiance of His glory and the exact imprint of His nature. And one of my favorite stories that helps us see how essential Christ is to knowing God is told by John Piper. He tells it this way. He says, imagine two classmates from college discussing a common friend um, from 30 years ago that they knew when they were in college. So imagine that this guy's name is Rob Craig, for instance. Right? So two of Rob's college buddies are saying, or that they said, they, I knew Rob Craig in college. Yeah, I knew a Rob Craig in college too. And so they begin to wonder after they talk for a while if they're talking about the same person. One of them is convinced they are, and the other keeps thinking, this is not quite the way he remembers Rob Craig. And so finally, they dig out their old college yearbook, and they settle the issue. They open the book, and as soon as they see the picture of their classmate, Rob (laughs) Craig, wearing that stylish tie, um, one says, no, that's not who I'm talking about. That's not the same person at all. Jesus, John Piper says, as he is revealed in the Bible, is the picture in the yearbook whereby we know whether or not we're talking about the same God with someone else. When a Muslim and a Christian, he says, who have been discussing whether they're worshiping the same God, look at God in the yearbook, it settles the matter. No, says the Muslim, as he looks at Christ That's not who I am talking about. But that is who Christians are talking about, right? We just saw it, John 1, 18. No one has ever seen God, but the only God who's at the Father's side, that's Jesus, has made him known. John 14, 8, Philip says, show us the Father. And Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Commentator George Guthrie says, one cannot separate the experience of looking at the brightness of a light from seeing the light itself because they're too closely associated. By analogy, to see the sun is to view God's glory or manifest presence. So as the radiance of His glory, the sun is the manifestation of the person and presence of God. A simpler way to put it would be this, a bumper sticker that expresses the idea. Know Jesus, know God. Okay? We could extrapolate on it. We could say, know Jesus, know God. Another way, that Christ is the only way we can know what God is like. He is the sole provision that the Father has made to show himself to us. Consider John 5, 23. This is a consistent teaching of the New Testament. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. 1 John 2, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. 2 John says, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Jesus came to reveal the Father to us. He is the radiance of His glory, the exact imprint of His nature. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Him. He does the work of creation. He does the work of revelation. And He does the work, the writer of Hebrews is going to tell us, of salvation. Um, look again at verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He made purification for sins. How many of you are familiar with the five-second rule? Okay, Drop a cookie. You got five seconds to pick it up. Right, um, that's that is the idea behind it. If food spends just a few seconds on the floor, dirt and germs courteously abide by the five-second rule and choose not to afflict your cookie until after five seconds. It's all parents practice this with pacifiers, right? After your after your firstborn, anyway. After the firstborn, the five-second rule kicks in, and the history. Uh, they say of the five-second rule, is difficult to trace, but one legend attributes the rule to Genghis Khan, who declared that food could be in the ground for five hours and still be safe to eat. So he operated under the five-hour rule um, back in the day. But there was a 2016 experiment just last year. Professional Donald, Donald Schaffner, he's a food microbiologist at Rutgers, he reported that a two-year study, a two-year study concluded that no matter how fast you pick up food that falls on the floor, you will pick up bacteria with it. Okay. And they tested four surfaces. They did stainless steel, ceramic tile, wooden carpet. They did four different foods, cut watermelon, bread, buttered bread, and strawberry gummy candy. <laughs> and they were dropped from a height of five inches onto surface treated with a bacteria. The researchers tested four contact times, less than one second and five seconds, 30 seconds, and 300 seconds. A total of 128 possible combinations of surface food in seconds were replicated 20 times each, yielding 2,560 drops. And after 2,560 drops, they, they found what we already knew in our hearts to be true, and that is that no f- fallen food escaped contamination. Um, and the professor concludes, bacteria can contaminate instantaneously. So the five-second rule is a myth, right? Bottom line, no matter how fast you are, you, you cannot grasp food, before um, pick it up before it's been dropped. Okay? Or you cannot pick it up before it's been contaminated, anyway. And this parallels, I think, a spiritual reality. Um, Our souls have been dropped, right? Um, It's no secret we've all had more than five seconds worth of wrongful actions and shameful thoughts. The Bible calls those sins. All have sinned, the Bible teaches us. We've all been dropped. And just like in the five-second rule study, once we've been dropped... We're contaminated, and we cannot self-purify, the Bible teaches. We need a purifier. Hebrews says Jesus made purification for sins. He went to the cross in order to purify us from our sins. And the book of Hebrews talks about this later on. In chapter 9, it brings it up. It says, how much more will the blood of Christ, a reference to his work on the cross who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works. We're purified by Christ's death on the cross. Hebrews 10 says something very similar. Brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus again, the death of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened through us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have great priest, another reference to Jesus, over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean, purified from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. So all those things that you have done, All those thoughts that you have lingered on, that you regret, that you are ashamed of, all those things, spiritually speaking, indicate that we've been dropped to the floor and we've been rendered unclean and impure. But Hebrews teaches us that Jesus went to the cross and shed his life's blood to cleanse you from that to save you from that. And as you welcome that and embrace that and trust in that great sacrificial death of Christ to purify you from your sins, you never have to bear impurity again. You are cleansed. You are clean. You've been purified. That's what the next phrase in that third verse means where it says, He is the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of his nature, he upholds the universe by his power, and after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The fact that he sat down means that he finished his work, he's done, complete, no more work is needed. And seated there at the right hand of the majesty on high, he, he rules over all of his creation. Kent Hughes puts it this way. He says, he is ruler. That's what that sitting means. He is ruler. The overarching significance here is that priests never sat down. Levitical priests were always standing, standing, standing because no sacrifice they offered was ever complete. They entered the holy place and stood year after year, high priest after high priest, for the work was never done. It was never complete. But Jesus, who is our high priest after the order of Melchizedek, as we see as we go through Hebrews, he sat down. Hebrews 10 describes it this way. It says, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And Kent Hughes says, and from the cross, Jesus shouted, it is finished. And then, reassured, took his seat forever. Forever. He is creator, he is revealer, he is savior. He does the work of creating and revealing and saving us by purifying us from our sins. That's work that belongs to God. And so we start the book of Hebrews with this stunning portrait of who Hebrews is. He starts the book that way because if we get this, then the rest will work itself out. If we grasp how stunning Jesus is, that he's not just a man, but he's something much, much more. He starts the book this way because he believes that our grasp of who Jesus truly is, is the foundation for all that follows. Once you recognize and believe and trust that Jesus really is better, that he really is greater, that he's creator and revealer and savior, that he's the son of God, the word of God to us become flesh, then you can follow. And it all makes sense. As we bring our our time to a close, let me encourage you, watch watch this video that puts this to us in the form of a challenge.
1: I've got five minutes to convince you of one thing. Altogether, it's 13 letters, three words, and one complete sentence. And I hope you never forget it. In fact, I hope it haunts you. I hope you always remember these 13 letters, these three words, and this one complete sentence. Jesus is better. You say, better than what? I say, better than everything else. He's better than any passing dream you might be chasing after. He's better than any worldly ambition that may have captured your devotion. He's better than anything that could distract you from doing what you were created is better. He's better than a six-figure salary. He's better than a three-story home. He's better than a trophy wife, a job promotion, and a Caribbean cruise. Jesus is better. Better than any person that has ever walked this earth. He's wiser than Gandhi and smarter than Einstein. He's more holy than Muhammad and more spiritual than Buddha. He's more eloquent than Shakespeare and more creative than Mozart. He's more powerful than Napoleon and more compassionate than Mother Teresa. Jesus is better. The Bible says he's better than Adam, better than Abraham, better than Moses, David, Better than the angels, better than the demons, better than any prophet, priest, or saint. Jesus is better. And there will be times when it's hard to believe. Times when it doesn't feel like Jesus is better. The world will hate you, your flesh will fight you, and the devil will lie to you. Storms will come. You're going to face disappointment, deception, betrayal, rejection, regret, sickness, and death. Gonna feel tired, empty, broken-hearted, scared, and alone. But don't forget in the darkness which you learned in the light. read your bible when you'd rather watch tv you're gonna pray when you'd rather sleep you're gonna serve when you'd rather be served and you're gonna speak up when you'd rather be silent but when it's all said and done you won't regret it you'll say it was worth it jesus is better Everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord For whose sake I have lost all things I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ Jesus is better So my hope for you isn't that you're safe, successful